Cool. So we are now finally starting chapter nine of Esther. It's the second to last chapter. Chapter 10 is real, real short. It's just like a little summary thing at the end. So um, we're just about there, which is exciting. For reminder, do you guys know the story of Esther? No? Set in the Persian Empire, about 500 BC, Persian king by the name of Xerxes. In the Bible, he's called Ahasuerus, but it's basically the Hebrew version of the Persian name. The Greek version of the Persian name is Xerxes. And uh, he's king of Persia, this huge, huge empire. Something happens, needs a new queen. And so he has this like, well, goes through this process, ends up choosing this young Jewish girl, Esther, to be the new queen of Persia. Meanwhile, Esther's cousin is, uh, I don't know, he's around. And there's this other guy, Haman, who's a part of the Persian Empire who gets basically made prime minister. And everybody's supposed to bow him and show him respect. But Mordecai, Esther's cousin, doesn't respect Haman, doesn't bow, him, bow to him. And so Haman gets really angry and he writes a decree that in 11 months time, there's basically going to be this day that's open season on Jews. Anybody who finds a Jew can kill them and take their stuff. Mordecai finds, finds out, he goes to Esther and says, you're the queen, you need to speak to your husband, you need to speak to the king and tell him what's happened and, and plead for our lives. And eventually Esther does that. And when Xerxes finds out he's really angry, he has Haman killed, executed. But there's still a problem. Problem being, in the Persian, under Persian law, once a law had been passed under the king's name, it cannot be undone. Not even the king can repeal that law. And so even though Haman is now dead and that problem is solved, there is still this law that's been, you know, published in Persia that in 11 months time, the Jews are able to be killed throughout this massive empire. And so that was chapter eight, was finding a solution to that. Does anybody remember what Esther and Mordecai did? Because Esther goes to him like, thank you for like, taking care of Haman, but there's still this problem of the law. In 11 months' time, my people are still going to be killed. And Xerxes says to her, I've done all I can, but you've got my ring. You can publish, you can, you can, you can write whatever you want. You can publish whatever, create whatever laws you want that you think might help. And do you guys remember what Esther and Mordecai did? Yeah, they basically passed another law that said on that same day, the Jews are able to do the same to their enemies. That was chapter 8. So chapter 9, now we see that kind of play out. So, first one. Can somebody read that? Microphone's over there. Do you want to read? First verse. In the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on its thirteenth day, thirteenth day, the edict of the king and his law were to be executed. It was on this day that the enemies of the Jews had suppo supposed that they would gain power over them, but contrary to expectations, the Jews gained power over their enemies. 
So, it's the 12th month, Persia. That month was called Adar. On the 13th day. And so, it was on the 13th day of the first month that Haman passed his law. It was on the 23rd day of the third month that Mordecai passed his law. So, it was like about two and a half months later. And now another eight and a half months has passed. And it's now the 13th day of the 12th month. And so this long-awaited day, this day that everybody's been dreading for almost a year now, has finally arrived. And it says, it was this day, on this day, that the enemies of the Jews thought that they would finally be able to destroy God's people, destroy the Jewish people. But, contrary to all expectation, the Jews gained power over their enemies. Now, I thought it would be kind of interesting. This is not the last time that this has happened. When the enemies of the Jews thought that they were going to defeat God's people, but contrary to all expectations, they didn't. Didn't work out that way. So, back on the 14th of May, 1948, so this is a couple years after World War II, finished, the first David Ben-Gurion, who was the first Prime Minister of Israel, the modern state of Israel, declared the establishment of the modern state of Israel. Yeah? So about 75 years ago. That was the, that was the land that they established as the Jewish state. It's kind of strange, right? basically three little pieces connected up by these tiny little corridors. It's quite an awkward space to have as your country, especially when you're surrounded by people who don't want you there. Anyway, so that was the 14th of May. The next day, the 15th of May, five armies invaded Israel. Egypt, what was then called Transjordan, it's now called Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. The day after Israel was established, all those five armies invaded the land. At that point in time, Israel didn't have a single cannon or tank or like any fighter planes. Their air force consisted of nine old airplanes. Most of them were passenger planes that they'd like borrowed from the Jewish airline called Aviron. And so again, unsurprisingly, the enemies of the Jews were convinced that they were going to win, right? Going to destroy God's people. They were going to wipe them out. The secretary general of what was called the, the Arab League, like this uh, sort of, yeah, I don't know, what was all of these countries put together, the guy who's in charge of it, this guy called Abdul Rahman Hassan Azam, said it will be a war of annihilation. This was the year before, in the lead up to this. He said it will be a momentous massacre in history that will be talked about like the massacres of the Mongols or the Crusades. And then, oh, that's the wrong date, sorry. This was the day before. This was on the 13th of May, 1948. He said... It doesn't matter how many there are, 
we are going to sweep them into the sea. That was their plan. And that's particularly painful considering this is like less than or just over three years since the concentration camp in Auschwitz was liberated. Like the Jews had just come out of the Holocaust and the surrounding nations were basically saying, we're going to finish the job that Hitler started. Now, you might have heard of um, the, like, the Palestinian refugees. You would have probably learned a little bit about it in your history class. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a lot. Like, you'll, you'll hear a lot about Palestinian, Palestinian refugees. Most of them actually left because the Arab leaders around them told them to get out of the way. In this, uh, Edward Atia, who was anyway, Secretary of the Arab League office in London, he said this wholesale exodus of the, of the Arabs out of the land of Israel was partly due to the belief that the Arabs, encouraged by the boastings of an unrealistic Arabic press and the irresponsible utterances of some of the Arab leaders, that it could only be a matter of weeks before the Jews were defeated by the armies of the Arab states and the Palestinian Arabs enabled to re-enter and retake possession of their country. And so all, as all of these armies were descending on Israel, they basically told the Arabs that were in Israel, get out of the way. Let us come in, destroy the Jewish people, drive them into the ocean if we have to, and it'll be, all be done in a couple of weeks, and then you can come and take your land back, take your homes back. Didn't work out that way. Against all odds, against all expectations, Israel won. And they actually expanded their borders into a much more like reasonable and defensible state. And those Arabs who fled Israel in preparation for the Arab armies coming and destroying the Jewish people, after the war, they're like, we want to come back. And Israel was basically like, no, you didn't fight for this land. You abandoned us to die. You can't come back. And so um, this was the Syrian prime minister. He says, since 1948, we have been demanding the return of the refugees to their homes. But we ourselves are the ones who encourage them to leave. Only a few months separated our call to them to leave and our appeal to the United Nations to resolve on their return. Anyway, so that was another time that, contrary to expectations, the Jews gained power over their enemies. But history repeats. So we fast forward another 19 years to June 1967. The Arab forces around Israel again thought that they had an opportunity to gain power over them to once and for all wipe out the, the Jewish people. In, in May of that year, Egypt moved 100,000 of its troops into the Sinai Peninsula along the southern border of Israel. And there were also UN peacekeeping troops that were based in the Sinai Peninsula, and Egypt ordered them to leave. At the same time, you had the radio, Cairo radio, announcing, this is our chance, Arabs, to deal Israel a mortal blow of annihilation. 
to blot out its entire presence in our holy land. A little bit later in May, the Arab people is firmly resolved to wipe Israel off the map. And then the president of Israel, Abdel Nasser, he wrote, the battle will be a general one and our basic objective will be to destroy Israel. Meanwhile, in the north, Syria moves 50,000 of its troops onto the northern border of Israel. Jordan moved 50,000 of its troops into the West Bank, which is that area over there, along with 200 tanks. And Iraq and Saudi Arabia also started moving their troops and their tanks and their airplanes to Jordan in preparation for attacking Israel. The Syrian defense minister right, was saying, the Syrian army with its finger on the trigger is united. I, as a military man, believe that the time has come to enter into a battle of annihilation. President of Iraq said, the existence of Israel is an error which must be rectified. This is our opportunity to wipe out the ignominy, the like shame and disgrace, which has been with us since 1948. Our goal is clear, to wipe Israel off the map. We shall, God willing, meet in Tel Aviv and Haifa, which are two cities in Israel. That's the 31st of May. And then the leader of the PLO, which was like the Palestinian uh, army, he wrote, this is a fight for the homeland. It is either us or the Israelis. There is no middle ground, middle road. Any of the old Jewish, old Palestine Jewish population who survive may stay, but it is my impression that none of them will survive. In total, the Arab armies amounted to about 240,000 soldiers, about 2,500 tanks, and a bit under 1,000 aircraft. Israel, on the other hand, had an army of about 50,000. They also had 200,000 reserve soldiers. So basically, these are just civilians, but they've been trained with guns. And so when there's a war, which for Israel, mostly their wars are a war for survival, those, everybody who can carry a gun basically joins the army or becomes a part of the army. So but anyway, they had up to 200,000 troops, but 50,000 core soldiers. They had 800 tanks versus 2,500 tanks. They had 250 to 300 planes versus 1,000 planes. It's not quite biblical proportions, but still pretty outnumbered. And so, once again, understandably, the enemies of the Jews had supposed that they would gain power over them, that they would finally finish what they've been, what yeah, what had been started before, beforehand. But again, it's not what happened. On the fifth of June, nineteen sixty-seven, early in the morning, quarter past seven in the morning. 200 Israeli jets, almost their entire air force, took off and headed west out over the Mediterranean Ocean, which apparently they did quite regularly, just about every morning. So nobody was super surprised. There were a lot more planes than usual, but it looked like a regular Israeli just training exercise. So they went out west over the Mediterranean Ocean, and then they dropped down to 60 foot, 20 meters above the ocean, which is below the Arab radar. And then they turned south. And under complete radio silence, they flew in over Egypt. And about half an hour later, quarter to eight, Israeli time, quarter to nine, Egyptian time, 
while most of the Egyptian pilots and that were having breakfast, Israel simultaneously bombed 11 uh, air, what do you call them? Not airport, air bases. They started by taking out the runways. They had these special bombs that would just create huge craters on the runways so the planes can't take off. And then they did another, another pass where they then just bombed the planes that are all just sitting neatly on the runway, unable to take off. Within three hours, they had destroyed 90% of the Egyptian Air Force, which at that point was the largest air force in the Middle East. They then turned their sights on Syria and, and Jordan, and within another three hours, they basically destroyed the entire Arab Air Force. And so, although this is called the Six-Day War, it was pretty much over in the first six hours because Israel had complete air superiority. They had complete control of the skies. But the fighting continued for another five days on the ground, in which time Israel took over the entire Sinai Peninsula, West Bank, Gaza, and the Golan Heights up in, in Syria. And so, again, contrary to all expectation, the Jewish people weren't destroyed, they weren't wiped out, they um, gained power over their enemy. Now since then, they've given, given most of that land back, they gave the Sinai back to Egypt in exchange for peace, they gave the Golan Heights back to Syria also in exchange for peace. The areas that they kept was the West Bank, mostly for security reasons, because they're so vulnerable. Tel Aviv is just over here, it's like you can basically look this is up high, it's elevated, and you can basically look straight at Tel Aviv, which is the largest city in Israel, and the airport. And so it's too dangerous to have people who are trying to destroy you that are so close to your main city center. And then Gaza, they've now given back, well, given over to the Palestinians. But, um, and then, but one of the key things of 1967 is they gained complete control over Jerusalem, which is now their capital. But anyway, so... It was a pretty, pretty epic time, but as Hegel wrote, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And uh, this is going to happen again. When the enemies of Israel think that they have an opportunity finally to destroy God's people. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come to a land restored from the ravages of war. He's talking to particularly, it sounds like, Russia, as well as Iran and some other, other countries that are supposed to be allied with them in this passage in Ezekiel. Its people were brought out from the peoples, and all of them will be living securely. You will advance. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the earth. You, all your troops, and the many other peoples with you. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil plan. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled towns. I will advance against those living quietly in security, all of them living without gates and bar without walls and get barred gates to loot and plunder, to attack the inhabited ruins and the people gathered from the nations who are acquiring cattle and goods who live at the center of the earth. 
So this was written about uh, about 500, no, 600 years BC. But it's talking about these nations coming to attack a people, where does it say? People who were brought, brought out from the peoples, gathered from the nations. And this is really talking about the modern, like current state of Israel. Remember, after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the Jews were scattered throughout the world. There was no Israel for almost 2,000 years. And the Jewish people lived basically all over the world in other countries. But in May, May 14th, 1948, Israel was established as a country again. And since then, God's been bringing the Jewish people back to the land. And so these are the people who are brought out from the peoples, the people who are gathered from the nations. This is Israel. They're being gathered back to the land. And apparently people... These other nations are going to devise this evil plan to invade the unwalled towns, attack those who are living quietly in security to plunder and loot them. And then in Zechariah, it says, this is an oracle, the Lord's message concerning Israel. The Lord says, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup that brings dizziness to all the surrounding nations. Indeed, Judah will also be included when Jerusalem is besieged. Moreover, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy burden for all the nations, and all who try to move it will be cut in pieces. Yet all the peoples of the earth will be assembled against it. Again, a very strange passage if you consider that for 2,000 years, Jerusalem was meaningless as a, as, a, as a city. There was no state of Israel, and Jerusalem was basically just ruins in the desert. But God said he was going to make Jerusalem basically it's going to make everybody drunk and everybody who tries to fiddle with it, to get involved with the problems there are going to be cut in pieces. It's going to cause them lots of pain and problems, which is pretty much what for the last 70 years, well, since, since 1967, Jerusalem's been the center of the world and like a major problem that all the nations of the world have been trying to deal, deal with. And all the peoples of the earth are going to be assembled against it. And then a little bit later, it's, God says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to wage war. And so we're told that, again, there is going to come a time when the enemies of the Jews, led no doubt by the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, and they're going to come against Israel, believing that they are finally going to wipe it out and wipe out the Jewish people. But again... Contrary to all expectations, they're going to fail. And they're going to fail for the same reason that Haman failed in the book of Esther, for the same reason that Hitler failed in Germany, that the Arab armies failed in 1948 and 1967, and every time they've tried to destroy Jerusalem, destroy Israel since then. They're going to fail because, as it says in the book of Psalms, look, Israel's protector does not sleep or slumber. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect you in all you do now and forevermore. So Israel have a protector. Who is that protector? The Lord, okay? The Lord is your protector. More specifically? 
There's this really interesting passage in Zechariah, chapter 2. It's quite confusing. It says, The Lord of heaven's army says. So who's speaking? The Lord of heaven's armies. Who's that? God. Okay. What does he say? For his own glory, he has sent me to the nations that plundered you. For anyone who touches you touches the pupil, the apple of his eye, the pupil of his eye. Yes, look here, I am about to punish them so that they will be looted by their own slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. So he's talking about, he's talking to Israel in this passage. The Lord of heaven's army says, For his own glory he has sent me to the nations that plundered you, Israel. For anyone who touches you, Israel, anybody who touches you, Israel, touches the people of his eye. So what does that tell us about Israel? Yeah, you're poking your finger in the eye of God, right? So don't, don't poke your finger in the eye of God. Don't mess with Israel. He says, yes, look here. I am about to punish them, those who mess with Israel, so that they will be looted by their own slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. The question is, who is me? No. Who's speaking? The Lord of Heaven's armies. And what does the Lord of Heaven's armies say? Then you will know that the Lord of Heaven's armies has sent me. Is that confusing? Who is His for His own glory? Yeah? Probably, say it out loud. God, right? Yeah. So for, for God's own glory, he has sent me to the nations that plundered you. Who's me then? Sounds like it's like God speaking about himself in third person and first person at the same time, right? A little bit confusing. It doesn't get any less confusing in the verses that come. It says, sing out and be happy, Zion, my daughter. For look, I have come. I will settle in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on the day of salvation, and they will also be my people. Indeed, I will settle in the midst of you all. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me to you. So again, you have like, I will come and settle in your midst. Who's going to settle in? Again, this is Israel. He's talking to Zion. This is a different term for Israel, Jerusalem. So, Somebody's going to come and settle in Jerusalem. Come and be among the people. Yeah, who is it? The Lord, says the Lord, right? And then he says, then you will know that the Lord has sent me. Then who's me? I think it's very interesting. This is written 500 years before Jesus was born. It doesn't make a lot of sense 
outside of there being a trinity, right? Outside of there being multiple like personalities to God, of God. God the Father, God the Son. But if you understand that it's Jesus who is the Lord of Heaven's armies, who say, well, it's Jesus saying, for my Father's own glory, He has sent me to the nations that plundered you, blah, blah, blah. Then you will know that my Father has sent me. Then it makes sense, right? I, Jesus, have come. I, Jesus, will settle in your midst. Then you will know that the Father has sent me. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's kind of cool. It kind of, it kind of assumes something that only really is revealed properly hundreds of years later in the New Testament. But without that understanding, this passage doesn't make very much sense. Yeah. Anyway, point being, Israel have a protector. It's the eternal rock, as we looked at it, cultivate. God who is faithful and unchanging. And the same God who fought for Israel under Joshua, who defeated Goliath for David, who saved the Jews from Haman, who saved the Jews from Hitler, and Egypt is going to save them again when the nations come out against them. This was um, David's prayer for Israel. He said, O oh God, do not be silent. Don't ignore us. Don't be inactive, O oh God. Look, your enemies are making a commotion. Those who hate you are hostile. They carefully plot against your people and make plans to harm the ones you cherish. They say, come on, let's annihilate them so that they are no longer a nation. Then the name of Israel will be remembered no more. Yes, they devise a unified strategy. They form an alliance against you. This was written a thousand years before Jesus, but it could have been written in 1948, right? Or 1967. They say, let's annihilate them so that they won't be a nation anymore. They form a unified strategy. They form an alliance against you. This then is David's request. Oh my God, make them like dead thistles, like dead weeds blown away by the wind, like the fire that burns down the forest or the flames that consume the mountainsides. Chase them with your gale winds and terrify them with your windstorm. Cover their faces with shame so they might seek you, O Lord. May they be humiliated and continually terrified. May they die in shame. Then they will know that you alone are the Lord, the Most High over all the earth. Kind of, we looked at that last week. This is a prayer for vengeance, justice, salvation. And God will answer the prayer every time. God will save Israel, not because they're faithful, but because He is. Okay, enough about the future. Let's get back to Esther. Verses 2 and 3. Go for it. The Jews assembled themselves in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to strike out against those who were seeking their harm. No one was able to stand before them, for dread of them fell on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those 
who performed the king's business, were assisting the Jews, for the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Mordecai was of high rank in the king's palace, and word about him was spreading throughout all the provinces. His influence continued to become greater and greater. All right, so again, the enemies, their enemies, what does it say? We're seeking their harm. They wanted to, wanted to harm, wanted to destroy the Jews in Persia. But the Jews had somebody on their side, the king, as well as all of his servants. Which kind of reminds me of Paul when in Romans he says, what shall we say about all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? If God is for you, who can be against you? No one, no one. Yeah, and that's what he says. No, in all these things we have complete victory through him who loved us. And it was basically same, same for the Jews. Like, as much as there were all these people who wanted to harm them and destroy them, they had the king fighting on their side, basically. Uh, and also, Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew, as he's described in other places, he's now high up in the king's court. And everybody was afraid of Mordecai, for good reason, because remember what happened to the last guy who tried to destroy him? Haman. And so everybody's afraid of the Jews too, because they had this guy in the king's palace. Yeah, that's interesting. It kind of makes me think of Jesus, like... We have an advocate, right? In, in God's palace, so to speak. One of us who's now there representing us. Yeah. And so our enemies are in trouble as well. Okay. This is 5 to 10. Ready? Good. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, bringing death and destruction, and they did as they pleased with their enemies. In Susa, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. In addition, they also killed, oh no, Parshandatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adelia, Adria, oh, Adriana, oh, <laughs> Parm Parmesan, uh, Parf <laughs> um, Arasai, Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not confiscate their property. Right, so. Yeah. So nobody could stand against them. The Jews, it says, could do as they pleased with their enemies. Now, I don't know. When I read these things, it's uncomfortable. It's a lot of death. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, bringing death and destruction. They killed and destroyed 500 men in Susa, as well as the 10 sons of Haman. Yeah, I don't know. It's never nice. But the reality is the Jews had enemies. They had people who were persecuting them and people who would gladly have killed them if they'd been given the opportunity. 
And we've seen that again and again and again in history. Like, oh, yeah, I don't know. If you, if you read history, what went on in Eastern Europe, in Russia, what went on in Europe during World War II, thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews were marched into forests and shot for no reason other than being Jewish. And there's very little question that their enemies in Persia would gladly have done the same. Now, in chapter 8, we looked at this, but it's, we looked at a psalm that said, there is a God who judges in the earth. And that is, to a degree, an encouraging thing, because it means that there is justice. Here, God gave his people the opportunity to take revenge against those who ultimately wanted to kill them. And apparently in Susa, there were 500 at least 500 such men, plus Haman's 10 sons. And it's like, it's ugly, but ultimately it's life in this broken and sinful world. Now, there's something that I found a little bit interesting. Like, so it says that in Susa the Citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Does that? I don't know why it bothers saying destroyed. Like it seems like a bit superfluous. Like stating the obvious. Well, not state. Just like killed. Kind of says it. Why do you need destroyed in there? The word for killed is harag, and it it just means to kill, to make a person dead. It can describe murder. It's what Cain did to Abel. It's what Joseph's brothers wanted to do to Joseph. It's what Esau wanted to do to Jacob. But it's also what God did to the firstborn in Egypt. So there is actually a specific word. It's ratzach, which is the word for murder. And that's the word that's used in the Ten Commandments. And it says, thou shalt not, you you shall not murder. It's not this word. This is kind of morally neutral, morally ambiguous. It's just to kill, to cause some, somebody to no longer be alive for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, for all sorts of reasons. Um, it has no moral implications. This word destroyed is avad, and it means to perish, die, or be destroyed. But it has a particular sense about it, which is of being disappeared, of no longer being there, no longer existing. So... It's a word that in Leviticus, this is talking about the Day of Atonement, which is like the, the most holy day, I guess, in the Jewish calendar. And, it was, and it, in Leviticus, it says, as for any person who does not, who does any work on this day, you weren't supposed to do any, do any work. It was supposed to be holy, like a Sabbath. I will destroy that person from the midst of the people. And it was talking about them dying, but it has the sense of them being removed from Israel. They're no longer there. Yeah? So, the people didn't only kill their enemies in Susa. They also no longer existed. They were gone. But again, that's kind of stating the obvious, because once they're killed, they are going to be gone. So, again, 
Why put that there? I believe that everything in the Bible is there for a reason. So why is that word there? Why not just say they killed their enemy, killed 500 men in Israel? Well, like I said, it turns out there is actually a reason here, I think. Back in chapter 3, we read, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a particular people that is dispersed and spread among the inhabitants through all the provinces of your kingdom, whose laws differ from those of all other peoples. Furthermore, they don't observe the king's laws. It is not appropriate for the king to provide a haven for them. If the king is so inclined, let an edict be issued to destroy them. That's the word, avad. That's where, that was the justification or where Haman justified this law he was going to write to destroy the Jewish people. And what he specifically said is, I want to avad, I want to destroy them. And so I think that's kind of why this is then put in later where like it's kind of same, same, other way. Um, the Jews not only killed their enemies, but they also did to their enemies exactly what their enemies wanted to do, them, do to them, which is get rid of them. But they did not confiscate their property. So if you remember, Haman's plan was kill the Jews, take all their stuff. And that was the law. When Mordecai wrote his like opposing law, he wrote exactly the same thing. The Jews can kill their enemies, their families, and take their stuff. It was exactly the same as Haman's law, but just in the other direction. But as we'll see, they didn't kill their families. And they didn't take their stuff even though they were allowed to under law. Why do you think that would be? Why do you think they didn't confiscate, they didn't take their enemy's property? Any ideas? If they had, so say like, yeah, I don't know, there's a Jewish person in the city of Susa and they kill somebody else and they take their stuff. What might people have thought? Why might people have thought that they were doing this? Yeah, to get rich, right? To take stuff. They were jealous. They were envious. And you can imagine how easily that would be, uh, uh, what do you call it, abused. Just find a rich person, right? He's my enemy. Kill him, take his stuff. And that certainly happened a lot in history. And so I think that was the point, was that it was to make very, very clear that what they're doing here has nothing to do with money. It's not motivated by envy or jealousy. This is self-defense. They're protecting themselves and their families. Yeah. Plus, all the property that did belong to these people probably would have ended up going to the king, which, would have, um, which wouldn't have hurt their standing with the king as well. One more thing. 
In addition, they also killed Parshandatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashtha, Arisai, Aradai, and Vaisatha. The ten sons of Haman. There's something quite interesting here. This is the this is a Hebrew Bible. Mostly looks like that. You can see in a sec. So that's Esther chapter eight. They read from that side to that side. So Esther chapter eight, and then Esther chapter nine. Notice something strange. Yeah, this is weird, right? It's not like all the other pages. Sorry? Those are the ten sons of Haman. For some reason, that part of the Hebrew text is written differently from all the rest. We're not sure how far this dates back, but it's at least to the Middle Ages. The names of Haman's sons are all listed way bigger than usual, so they use up the whole page. On the right are all the names, and then on the left is and, basically. All stacked up on the left. It's a bit weird. Now, the question is why? Why is it written this way? And the rabbis, what they've said about this is that basically this is an unstable structure. Having everything just stacked on top of each other, it's destined to fall. And it's just kind of symbolic. Haman and his household were destined to fall. Because they're unstable. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah? And this is kind of like a straight, straight line, a straight pole, kind of like the spike that they would have been, Haman would have been executed on. And as we'll see, the sons of, yeah, impaling, if you remember, like that gallows and impale, yeah. Okay, so that's okay. Then there's a few other things that are a bit unusual. This large, last, it's a V. It's the start of Vaishatha, the last, his last son, is way bigger than normal. Big and long. And so they're like, why is it written like that? And again, the explanation is, it's like, like a long pole. And it symbolizes the fact that all the sons of Haman were impaled on, a, on one pole. Okay. But there's something else that's a bit strange. There are also three letters that are written way smaller than usual. There's this Tav. It's a T. There's this Shin. And this Zion. And they're all really little. And the question is, why? Why is it written this way? Now, I don't really know. I've read, like, basically rabbis have come with all, like, various convoluted explanations, none of which make a whole lot of sense to me. And so I really have no idea why it's written like this. But there is something quite fun that I saw, which I thought I'd share with you guys. So, in Hebrew... Letters have numerical value. So letters are not just letters, they're also numbers. Yeah? 
Tav has the is is the number is the letter that has the number four hundred associated with it. Yeah. So if you want to write four hundred, you write a Tav. Shin is three hundred, and Zion Zion is seven. So if you add all those together, you get seven hundred and seven. Okay. And then this Vav is the number six. Now, in the Jewish calendar, the 707th year of the sixth, their sixth century, millennia, sorry, sixth millennia, because they've been counting in theory from Adam and Eve. And so we're in 2023, which is 223 years after approximately Jesus. The Jewish calendar is not 2023. The Jewish calendar is just under 6,000, I think. 5,000 5, something. So, the 707th year of the 6th century would be the year 5,707 in the Jewish calendar. Does that make sense? Which in our calendar was the 26th of September, 1948. 1949. Yes? Okay. In, that's wrong. That should be 1946. Sorry. The year before, 1945, November, is when the Nuremberg trials began. Do you guys know what the Nuremberg trials are? You do? Who? What are they? No, 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 no. This is so this is after World War II. It's 1945, 1946. The Nuremberg trials is when yeah, it was what was called the International Military Tribunal, IMT, that was gathered to try the surviving Nazis. Yeah? World War II is over. There's a bunch of people who, were, who, were, who have survived. Hitler obviously committed suicide, and a lot of the other leaders in Nazi Germany died. But there were a whole bunch that had survived, and so they were put on trial for crimes against humanity, war crimes. So those trials started the year before. Like I said, this should be 1946. They started in November 1945. Closing arguments were held on the 31st of August 1946. And the judges deliberated for about a month. And they delivered their verdict on the 1st of October 1946. Which would be the year 5707 in the Hebrew calendar, yeah? Which began on the 26th of September. This is now the 1st of October. So it's like just straight into their year 5707, yes? There were, so they delivered their verdict. Two of the people on trial were acquitted. They were let go, found not guilty. Eight were sentenced to prison. Twelve were condemned to death. One of those guys wasn't actually there. They thought he was alive, but he'd actually already died. He was tried in, like, absent to the trial. 
And then the last, another guy, Hermann Goering, who was one, one of the guys who, one of the architects of the Holocaust, he committed suicide after the verdict had been given. And so in the end, there were 10 Nazis sentenced to death. Yeah? Now, they claimed we're military men. We were acting in a military capacity. We should be executed by firing squad. But the judges were like, no, you don't deserve that. You're going to be hanged. And so on the 16th of October, 10 Nazis were hanged in the year 5707. Now, there was a guy called Julius Streicher. He was the founder and publisher of a newspaper called Der Sturmer, which was where they published most of their anti-Semitic propaganda that they used to justify the Holocaust. And when he was led to the gallows on the 16th of October, as he got to the bottom steps, he apparently yelled, Heil Hitler! And then when he got to the rope, he turned to the crowd and said, screamed out, Purim Fest, 1946. We haven't quite got there yet, but the, the name, Purim is the name of the Jewish holiday that they used to celebrate Esther, the story of Esther. And so when he was being hanged for his crimes against the Jewish people, he basically claimed this is Esther 1946, which is kind of interesting that even the, well, that the Nazis associated what was going on here, their battle with the Jewish people, with the story of Esther, and a little bit ironic that they associated themselves with the villain, with Haman. But anyway, I don't, personally, I don't really believe this. 46. Because you can play all sorts of games with numbers in the Bible. So I don't think that that's the reason why this is here, but I thought it was kind of interesting anyway and kind of fun. Um, okay. Uh, okay, we'll look at a couple more verses and then we'll finish. Can somebody read verses 11 and 12? On that same day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was brought to the king's attention. Then the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? What is your request? It shall be given to you. What other petition do you have? It shall be done. So I'm not quite sure how to read this. Like when I, when I first read it, it's like, on the, okay, so on that same day, Somebody comes to the king and is like, uh, Xerxes, your honor, just so that you know, the Jews have killed 500 people in Zeusa today. I don't know how that was delivered. Was that like a good thing? Was that like a bad thing? Or is this a completely neutral, just report to the king, this is what's happened? Don't really know. And then King, Esther goes, uh, king Xerxes goes to Esther and tells her, the Jews have killed 500 people. Imagine what they've done through the rest of my kingdom. And again, I kind of feel like there's two ways you could read that or that I read that. Like, it kind of could sound 
might sound, I don't know, like Xerxes is surprised and maybe a little bit concerned <laughs> and wondering like just how much distraction there's been through his empire that day is the one option. But I think the other, the other option, and I think that this is more likely to be the case, is that Xerxes is reassuring Esther. Because as this day approached, kind of like Israel, watching all of those armies amass their troops on their border, as this day approaches, nobody really knows what's going to happen. Sure, the Jews have been given the right to defend themselves, but are they going to be able to defend themselves? Or are they still just going to get slaughtered by their enemies? You know? And so I imagine Esther's holed up in the palace. She doesn't know what's going on out there. She doesn't know if her people have survived or if her people have been destroyed. And so I think that what Xerxes is doing here is he's encouraging her. He's saying like, well, he's saying, it's worked, right? You're safe. Your people have survived. Not only have they survived, they have hammered their enemies. But still, like if you're still worried, if you have any further concerns, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do anything. Yeah? And so that's what he says there. What's your request? It'll be given to you. What other petition do you have? And it will be done. We'll stop there. Next week, we can see what she says. Not next week, maybe the week after. I think we're downstairs next week. Let's pray quickly and then we can go. Praying. Lord, thank you so much for today. Again, as always, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the encouragement it is to know that you are. You are a mighty protector, Lord, that you are the same today, yesterday, today, tomorrow, that the same God who protected Israel from Haman, who protected Israel from Egypt, is the God who protects us. And um, I ask that you would help us to I don't know, just find peace and comfort and reassurance in the love that you have for us, the promises that you've made to us, Lord. Um, please go with us all this week. Be with these guys as they go off to school. Let it be a good week. And uh, bring us back safely next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. What a flock.